Welcome to Simon and White and the podcast at the crossroads of media, market, politics. I'm Christian White and joined as always by Mark Simon, who's with us from Taiwan today. Mark, please say hello. Hi, everybody. How are you? I'm going to do you know, this in Taiwan. I, I was with somebody on a newscast the other day and they were talking. I'm not kidding. At the end, she goes, <laughs> I'm like, OK, that's a good way to finish out a talk about mayoral races in Taipei. <laughs> Taiwan politics, yes, Taipei, Taiwan politics, always extremely interesting. Um, Okay, there's big, big news that affects uh, the global economy, but in particular, it's it's coming from China. And actually, it's funny because the news, if you look at it, the IMF is talking this up, the financial media dishonestly talking up stimulus from China that might help the the, uh, global economy in a softer landing for the U.S. economy, blah, blah, blah. We're all optimistic and doubtful. Missing what's happened with Evergrande, this giant, giant property developer, uh, most assets on the mainland was just liquidated by a Hong Kong court. Correct me if I'm wrong on some of these details, no. but um, there'd been this this idea that there was just no way to work out this company, no way to viability. Um, bondholders, shareholders were suing for liquidation to see if they could get anything out of it. And a Hong Kong court finally said, OK, yes, do it. Um, so it's liquidated. Now, the question is whether the mainland follows suit because that's where the assets are. And um, even though one country, two systems was abrogated by the Chinese breaking their promises in Hong Kong, you do still have these two sort of legal systems running, not not in perfect synchronicity. So we'll see what happens. But this is a big deal, isn't it, Mark? I mean, we talk about um, you know the, the potential of commercial real estate to go bang here. It was residential real estate that kicked off the 2008 financial crisis in the United States. Um, in China, in particular, real estate is seen as a vehicle for life savings and intergenerational wealth that has gone poof to some extent. Uh, is this a pretty big deal? I think it's a monster deal. I think there's um, you never like to start out saying, well, uh, some people understand it and some people don't. But you get it. Um, you have a financial background. Um, but the thing is, is like people are always looking at, oh, this power structure and that power structure. Evergrande is a very clear indicator imagine you have a town because that's how big evergrand is evergrand has close to a trillion dollars in property price at price and they have close to a trillion dollars a guy told me in commercial obligations in china a trillion now when i mean commercial obligations i'm talking about payables receivables value of land or things like that in other words they're on the hawk. They're a trillion dollars into the system, as, as somebody told me. I thought that was a great analysis, an analogy. Imagine a small town and all of a sudden 25% of that town folds up. It, it would the, the, it, the political waves would be incredible. Evergrande is essentially, as I see it, of the formal banking sector, not the informal, but the formal banking sector, is in double digits of the, of the, of, of the banking sector. Everybody's exposed to it. Um, here in Taiwan, I know bankers are desperately looking through all their high-end clients and their fact, the guys who run OEM guys and everybody in China, the manufacturers, the Taiwanese, who may be exposed to Evergrande. Because <clears throat> it it, it's, it's just nuts over there. In other words, I met a guy the other day who's a lawyer. He told me he has a client who has a note from Evergrande for like 17% interest rate that he bought three years ago. 
for like 40 million US dollars because Evergrande was looking for money. I said, has he been paid? He goes, yeah, he got paid his, uh, he got paid last year. And I go, what's, what's he going to do now? He goes, we hadn't been paid in the year. And I said, so he's basically lost 20, 30 million bucks. He goes, yeah, about $30 million. I said, what's he going to do? He said, nothing. But the thing is, he's, he said, he's large enough. So he just, he just says, all right, I lost it. That's what I lost. But He's, and now he's just trying to find a way to work it into his tax returns. Now, that's kind of boring, I know. <laughs> but let me get back to Evergrande. Evergrande is a monster, and it's failing. And everything in China is built on real estate. I don't care what anybody says. There's really no intellectual property in China. It's a complete weakness on their hmm. part. What intellectual property do they have? Think about it. Other than what they've stolen, they can't export right. half their high-end stuff. I mean, they all this talk about, oh, well, the you know, Chinese cars are going to hit the U.S. Yeah, they're going to hit the U.S. even if there is a even if there is a uh, ter tariff reduction, which there won't be. Even if there is, they're going to hit lawsuit after lawsuit for all the technology they stole. You know, it's 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 there's no real technology. Of course, there's a few small things. But does Alibaba have anything that the whole world is excited about? Does TikTok have anything the whole world is excited about? Other than the fact that they'll do stuff with TikTok. All the, the only thing, their advantage is one thing. They'll do stuff with the information that everybody else collects that you're not allowed to do in the U.S. In other words, their, their, their program will just is a lot. It feeds you what you want because it's a lot more intrusive. That's all it is. You know, but you couldn't do that if you were, uh, if you were some of these other guys. But right. the real so, you know, like, Yeah, I mean, the, that's actually a good point that, we don't make it up here is that uh, even with AI, everyone talks about chips and NVIDIA and all that, but it's really the software um, and yeah, I mean, the U.S. leads. The Chinese can only steal that once and then they have to steal the next version if it grates. I mean, they, they can they, yeah, they, they can steal they the hardware, they can reverse engineer that, but there's no real intellectual property there. It is all this, right. this real estate. They don't, they don't have anything. And, 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 and what's happening now is that everything is leaving. You know what I'm saying? Everything is now leaving them in terms of the best and the brightest or the, the wealth. But back to Evergrande, Evergrande is really a crisis for them. And you can tell how they're handling it, as they always do. They're handing it off to the side. So just recently, last week or so, they sent out memos saying all real estate issues are now a local and regional issue. Pontius Pilate, hmm. you guys take it. Well, what's going to happen? Are you, are you going to have... Now, Evergrande, when people say, well, Evergrande could be rolled up by the Hong Kong courts, well, now you're dealing with multiple different locations. The Evergrande and their lawyers will keep it going as long as they can. No politician has any incentive to pull Evergrande down because when you pull it down, you've got tens of thousands of buyers, maybe hundreds of thousands, who've got deposits down, are just bought and haven't moved into completed buildings yet. They're going to be in the streets. But this, this is, this is, we've gone around it for a second, but this is the whole thing. Look, if you go to somebody and you say you're worth 500,000 US dollars, you've worked hard your whole life in China, you and your wife and your one kid, and you've got this, you've got this place and you own your place and you're going, okay, I'm doing okay. I got $500,000. When I die, I can give this to my kid or my wife will always have this. Maybe at a certain point we'll sell it and we'll be okay. But that's your that's your that's your that's your that's your nest egg. Well now that five hundred thousand dollars is not worth 
400 grand. It's not worth 350. It might be able to move at $300,000 if you're outside of Beijing or someplace like that. I had a long and extensive cigar session with two guys who do property a week ago, week or well, two weeks ago, um, who were down here. They're Taiwanese guys. And they said, yeah, great. You're willing to take 30% off of the, of the asking price. There's still nobody there. In other words, yeah, something wow. in your building, your, your building was at a million U.S. dollars in Shanghai for a unit. And it's something sold a year and a half ago at a million dollars. And then one of your neighbors closed at like six six seventy five. So you're at six fifty, but there's no buyer there. In other words, that buyer who bought at six seventy five is pretty happy. They're okay. They they'll probably be they may take a head kiss, but there's nobody else showing up. Plenty of people are wanting to rent it. You know what I'm saying? On on yeah. on now now one of the things people wonder they want to rent it and they want to be able to adjust up and down every year. <laughs> And, and so it's not uncommon now to have people jumping apartments every two years. You know, nobody used to have to sign, you know, money up front, all that stuff. It's changing. And so all of a sudden, these people who own four or five units and were able to demand from some expat a year's rent in advance from his company. Well, that's not happening anymore. So their whole cash flow situation is messed up. The point that I'm always making about real estate is this in China. Real estate in China is cash flow. Unlike the U.S., you, in the U.S., it's asset and, and it's, it's built up. In China, it's also cash flow. In other words, people use it and the leverage that they get from it and the income that they get from it to fund other things. So it's a lot more so in terms of how their cash flow is. It's, it's all connected into the cash flow there. People have things very finely tuned there, and it's all dependent on the real estate Going up or worst case scenario, staying stable. Going down does not does not happen. And it's not uncommon to bump into an average person in Beijing or Shanghai who owns three or four units, two or three units, and they're wow. renting them out now. And then all of a sudden it's like, that's what I mean by cash flow. It's 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 dropping. It's cash flow for the banks or people making their payments. Real estate is cash flow that into yeah. an economy. And that's the problem that they're having in China. So here's the political. I mean, so, you know, check me on this political prediction. I don't think the Communist Party is going to fall because I think they'll use force to stay in. But I I wonder from a U.S. perspective, is this administration taking advantage of that? In other <laughs> yeah. words, we got them over the barrel. So now, you know, we got them over. Let's start bending them over. Let's start doing our thing. I mean, let's start getting some stuff back from these guys. We don't seem to be in that mode. They still need to be delusional about. Yeah, this. I think the you're right. Part. It's it's not not even are we not taking those steps? There's I, no one in this administration is even thinking in those terms. I was actually just talking with a friend of a think tank, thinking, you know, should we do something on on sort of rediscovering political warfare, which also you know, would go into rediscovering what I would call real human rights, which is not flying a pride flag or a transgender, whatever multicolor thing over your embassy and lecturing, you know, people in Qatar telling them they have to live by our, our, our rules. It's actually personifying human rights. Anyway, um, same thing with political warfare. The idea that there are steps you can take short of actual war to put your adversary on the back foot and that you ought to do those if they're causing problems for you. And certainly China's causing problems for us. But this administration 
just um no, I mean, the fact that Jake Sullivan just met with the Chinese at great length to talk about what, how they can help us in the Red Sea, as if we would even want the Chinese to help us in the Red Sea. I mean, the idea that the Chinese, where do they have their little naval base now? Is it Djibouti? It's somewhere over there in the Horn of Africa. That's not a good thing. Uh, not a good thing that they have a blue water Navy. Not a good thing that they're extending power around the globe. We do not want them policing the Red Sea, even if they helped us a little bit with the Houthi, which, which they're not going to do. But the idea that Janet Yellen, Janet from another planet, Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, is, is sitting there in Treasury thinking, oh, wow, you know, not only are people like your friend getting hosed who held Evergrande bonds as high as they were paying while they were paying, yes, Chinese I mean, banks probably hold these too. And so, yeah, let's let's really get them now on on things we want on IP, on the South China Sea, on human rights, and all these other things. But I, I just I would I like literally zero in that entire complex from the Treasury Department to the White House and the West Wing to the uh, uh, EEOB. I, not maybe not even a single person thinking in those terms. I would guess. I, I think. I think the thing that people forget is that you do have, and unfortunately I've seen it up close with this administration, this, these, these are the Obama people really. They fundamentally do not really share the same image of America that I think the vast majority of Americans do. You know, I, 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 I think they look at China. There's a lot of envy. That, oh boy, we can look, think what we could do with climate change if we had that government. You know what I'm saying? Think what we could do. <laughs> think what we could do on any a number of issues. We just order people around. There's an instinct there. It's a bad instinct. I've seen it for, you know, 20 years on the left in America. I'm not. I'm. I generally think there's a lot of very decent people on the left, on on human rights. But I think they they just lose it. You know, you see Kristoff. You see all these people. You see Friedman. You see all these people who probably you should wonder why. I think they're consumed with the potential power. And the problem that you have now with this real estate situation is the entire premise of using power is over. Because like I said, they're giving it out to the, to, to the regions and the cities and the, and the provinces because they can't handle it at the national level. And that gets back to, I think, almost the same type of mentality that we have. We expect them, we, I'm sorry, we expect something out of them in terms of power and that they can do things. And we think we can sit around there and cut deals. What I'm saying is it's the fallacy of their entire operating procedure. Their, their belief is, okay, we'll work with the Chinese because they have long-term Kissinger. Oh, they can, they can do things that we can't do. Well, now they can't do those things. There's nothing they can do in their own system. They're so screwed up. So our entire premise of negotiations doesn't matter. It's, it's like going to buy a house and you're going to talk to somebody and you're going, well, my father wants to sell the house. Where's your father? Oh, he's not here today. I'm just getting the prices for him. Well, I need to talk to your father about buying the house. He, he's the decision maker. Oh, well, you know, we have to go someplace else. In other words, that's who China is now at the CCP level. The economy is out of control and our people are still trying to talk to them about certain things. Whereas what we should do is start hammering them a little bit and then make them get their house in order to deal with us. Yeah. That's a very long-winded thing, and I think people aren't, are going to find it a little complicated. But my point is, we have the upper hand now. Why are we not hammering these people? We have the upper hand. Hammer them. Absolutely. I mean, this applies to Iran, too, when you had 
both thinking back now is it 2009 and then again in 2010 a little bit and then again more briefly uh uprising and these are not jihadists or islamists who want a more islamist uh regime these are they may not be classical liberals but if they're causing problems for our adversary uh, and yeah. there, there's always an argument, oh, well, if the U.S. gets involved, it'll actually be counterproductive. That's that's not true. If you talk to anyone who was a dissident, um, uh, in jail, repressed, uh, looking over his shoulder for the secret police, your boss, um, you know, people like that will say that the involvement and attention of, of the West um, was was critical of people behind that. But, uh, yeah, not a lot of not a lot of thought being gone. Just to go back to your question of the future of the CCP. You're right. I don't think this is, is, I mean, I guess we'll never know when, when the final uh, Jenga piece comes out. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, take your notional guy who has a, a house, an apartment, he owns it. That's something that he can leave. It's a, it's a cushion. Um, the one child, which is the son, because that's their version of social security. When uh, the man dies, the mother, uh, the woman moves in with her, her son, um, you know, all of this is, is starting to come undone to an extent, or it's ramifications of, of, you know, the demographic crunch, lack of women, lack of children. It seems to be coming to a head. And if you're, if you're sitting there, you're thinking, golly, you know, Xi Jinping has all this power, the most power of anyone since, since Deng, or maybe Mao. And, um, you know, what's happened since then? We've gone from both parties in the U.S. naively liked us. Europe loved us. We were making money and getting richer. We were, there was talk of us becoming the number one economy in the world. Um, you know, we had this thing going in Hong Kong, Taiwan. We had this party, the KMT, that was awfully partial to us. And, and it looked, and they were often in charge. And all of that's gone out the window. And, and what have we gotten in return? More party rigidity? I mean, who wants that? Um, it just makes Xi Jinping's leadership, I think, look a little, uh, a little wobbly. But, um, or at least potentially wobbly, but uh, what do you think? I mean, these strong men have a way of, of I mean, he, if anyone has consolidated his power and eliminated his opposition, she is uh, you know, among the top. I think Ronald Reagan really, and Margaret Thatcher and Hermit Cole and hell, even Mitterrand or the other one, they brought down the Soviet Union, you know what I'm saying, in other words, you know, because basically they just kept making them run and run in the same place. And sooner or later they dug their own hole. My point being is, is like to defeat something, you got to have something. And mm -hmm. right now the West doesn't have it. Trudeau is in, incredibly, you know, we have Trudeau who's incredibly friendly to the CCP. Kevin Rudd, who's kind of leading Australia, China policy for the most part from DC and is incredibly influential in our policy. Kevin Rudd is basically a, a CCP fan because it makes him, in other words, that's somebody he can deal with. Um, mm -hmm. Even in the U.S., you see when you come to Taiwan, one of the more interesting things is it's like really there's about four factions you have to see in Taiwan to know what's going on. You have to see the DPP. You have to see the DPP crazies, you know, the, the, the nut jobs who think that independent, the U.S. should let, the, that we should have people die for their independence. So you have to see the crazies, the normal people, the KMT, and now the TPP. So you have to see four. It's a pain in the ass. If you get to go to China, you get to the illusion of seeing one person. And that gets back to my whole thing. 
they've kicked this, they've kicked all their problems to the provinces. So no matter if you talk to them or not, they can't fix anything. The fentanyl agreement is fascinating because of that. I said, oh, the U.S. has an agreement with fentanyl. Well, the China, yeah. the China hand's like, well, the CCP says it, they're going to do it. Shit, you think Guangzhou is going to all of a sudden stop sending fentanyl, the money that they're making on that? That's like saying you cut a deal. Imagine if you went to the American people and said, we've cut a deal with Mexico to secure the border. Yeah, the Mexicans <laughs> are going to do that. Nobody knows it. And the Chinese, we used to think the Chinese have the ability to do that. They really never had the ability. There's an old saying, the mountains are high, the emperor is far. You know what I'm saying? That's They're a not great worried line. about That's it. That's a great saying. <laughs> he, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be about, the only thing that fentanyl agreement is going to be is about 50 executions. They're going to go out there. So Donald Trump goes, and you saw Xi Jinping. He can do it when he wants to do it. He's going to execute those guys. You know, they'll, they'll execute 20 guys for fentanyl. Biden and, and Trump will be going, look at that. They're doing their thing. Bullshit. You know, they basically executed 20 lackeys who got in the way. And the fentanyl will keep flowing because right. they don't have the ability to do it. Because in non-democratic society, everything's, a, everything's it's hard to get a bottom line. People always forget that. But my point about, I think your point is right. I think the CCP is going nowhere and it's going to take a long time for them to get out of the way, but they're only going to do it when they get pressure to do it. And there's no pressure coming from this administration. I'm not even sure there's pressure coming from the Trump administration, a Trump administration. My point right. is, I think there's not a sea change yet in the U.S., you know, of, of, of and the West. And people always talk about we're hard on China now. We're hard on China, but nobody's near the Reagan years of Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. That's that's like, you know, you know, I mean, oh, yeah, Biden it blows their, blows their mind. She a dictator? Yeah, I, I remember the State Department once uh, when I was working on North Korean human rights, I gave a t- public talk in Brussels, a human rights thing. And then was coming to Hong Kong. I think I met with you. I was it was a bunch of private meetings, nothing no press that I was aware of, but a, a, a very concerned foreign service officer showed up at my hotel saying, well, we read your remarks in Brussels and where you compared Mao Zedong to the other maximum dictators of the 20th century, Hitler and Stalin, you know, they don't see it that way here. I'm like, okay, I don't know who you think they is. Um, they is wrong and maybe they should hear something different. And actually, if you talk people through this, I think there, there'd be some similarities, especially in death count. Uh, but yeah, no, just the uh, what you said that um, Look, um, even, even the language isn't there. And just just one other point that you said, uh, you know, you have to have something to replace this with. And you're right. So you had this Reagan Thatcher financial, rev, uh, mostly financial revolution. The economies are coming back. People were confident in the West again. They were confident in America, confident in Britain. And you had Pope John Paul, who was, you know, not into liberation yeah. theology. He was actually just into this, you know, crazy thing called Christianity and Western civilization. And they were unabashed about that. And you don't have any of those factors currently. Maybe we will. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it does come, even if there is a Trump administration, you may, I think he would have higher tariffs. I think Bob Lighthizer would come back and go to town and it wouldn't take him two years to do there do it this time. But you're right. It's not it's not, you know, a redo of the, the 80s, unfortunately. No, I mean, I just, I, I think, look, the other thing with the 80s is, and I know this is going to sound odd, it's nice that we're on a podcast so we don't have to make, you know, I can talk about fallacies and that sounds like, uh, you know, I can stretch it out. I'm going to do that a little bit here too. The real problem is 
we're dealing with just a different class of people. I'm not one of these guys. Oh, you're not tough enough. You know what I'm saying? And, oh, you have to be harder. You know, and all that. The, the younger generation. I'm not like that. There's just a different mindset. The mindset of people who dealt with the Soviet Union was was basically the greatest generation. In other words, everybody in power. Reagan, not a veteran, but basically World well, War II. He, he was. He just had terrible eyesight. He so he, he was a cavalry officer, but he made films and you know during during the war. That's and right. Actually, didn't. Well, I, 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 I think so. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he would have probably gone to war. With it. I mean, he seems like that type. But you know, you had you had you had uh, Reagan. It was a whole generation who had basically seen three major wars because you know, Vietnam wasn't a police. It was a major war. We had 500,000 guys injured and, and, and you know, 50,000 dead. Um, Korea and, of course, World War II. These were serious people who had seen hundreds of thousands of Americans killed and millions in the world. So the simple fact of the matter is that if you're going to if you're going to play these little games that Everybody at Harvard and going, well, you know, he is an MBA. He's a specialist. Or we're worried about a mantle. You know, in other words, like, oh, we can't have a panel because it's a mantle. It, it just goes to the lack of seriousness. And it's it's one yeah. of the things I just I always get back to. So the fact of the matter is I'm not bemoaning that or just saying that. But look, the, 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 we're just not there yet in the mindset. Now, does it take us a war in the Pacific to get there? I don't. I hope not. But the fact yeah, of the matter is, is that, you know, the thing is, and I'll, I'll get in, this could get me in some trouble. The way the administration and the media tried to just push by these three people killed in the Middle East is phenomenal. These three, these three guys, these three people, these three service people who were killed, these soldiers, these soldiers, service people, these soldiers who were killed. I just sensed over here when I was searching it, when I was looking at just the ability to go back to what I call academic questions. And I think in the 80s, they basically understood. They understood repression. They understood what it was like to have a friend come out of a prison camp. They understood what all these things are like. It's one of the things with Jimmy. There are times when I talk to people and I, they just start talking about the student movement is really bad about this, the structure and this and that. And it's, and it's, antisept, and it's antiseptic. You know, the fact of the matter is they talk about things, but they don't really have, you know, the experience of what the Chinese can do. The Uyghurs, on the other hand, I, I always sense that they really get it because there's a lot of torture going on up there. There's people who disappear, don't come out. Um, but my, my, my point is, is that I just think that and I don't really have a point to the thing. I have a theme. My theme is, is just that, you know, unfortunately, it's very hard, Kristen, to look around and see on either side, even with Trump. You know, Trump tells everybody he's serious, but a serious person would not be in conversations about who's more popular, Taylor Swift or him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's 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 this is not a a, a guy wouldn't be like delivering all these. He blows. And the people I see everybody always talks about the leaders. Well, the leaders are a reflection of the people. You know, I mean, on the Democratic side, they're insane on some of the people and the Republican side. You know, you can't it's it's not it's not a good look either for us. So my point is, is like when you start dealing with stuff, it's very hard to see in how things are going to change with China in terms of us having the ability to push them out. In other words, you've got you've got to have an ability to push and apply pressure on them. 
and there's nobody in the regime or any place else. Pottinger, I think, was probably there, but Pottinger, he's not going to come back. And I, I do believe the Trump people think Pottinger was overall a mistake. I think in his heart, the heart, Jared Kushner and those guys, well, Kushner won't be around either. He'll, he'll, if, if Trump's in power, Kushner will come back. But I don't think you're talking he's, about I Matt Pottinger. He, he was he started out of, as the senior director at the NSC for East Asia, and then he was the deputy national security advisor national when security. Robert O'Brien was the national security I, advisor. Hawkish on, on China, and he was a, he was interesting because he was a Wall Street Journal reporter in Beijing, and then joined the Marine Corps and, and was in Afghanistan, and uh, then banking. Kind of a very interesting background, but he was sort of the one who put the policy meat on the bones of. Uh, not so much the trade part, although I think he was in favor of certainly what Lighthizer was doing. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, he's uh, a, he was a hawk on trade. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you think that they thought he was too hawkish for the job and they should have had an even more sort of wimpy treasury guy? I think in Trump land, everything is loyalty. And yeah. I, I had a kind of an argument with somebody. Um, I didn't agree with them at all. They were saying, well, you know, Matt was undercutting us. I'm like, how is Matt undercutting you? And the argument was basically what happened is Matt at January 6th made the decision to resign. You know, right. he took a principal Like a day statement. early. Yeah. A day early. A day early. Now, Matt's, anyway, Matt told me do, specifically, because I was joking if Matt was anonymous. I knew he wasn't the guy, the person who was writing something. But yeah. no, Matt told me without any sort of joke or funny look in his face, and this is long before January 6th, I think Donald Trump saved this country. Which is just very interesting that someone that you can be loyal and and implement the president's agenda, have access to the Oval Office, and then you know um, it just takes one thing with these people. And uh, that's that's, that's know, the problem. Like the mafia, I guess that's the the problem with Trump is there's no intellectual diversity inside of it. And that's why it's, I hate to say it, Chris, he's not going to win. Um, I don't think he's going to be up against Biden too. I think there. I think I think the media is going to take Biden out. Uh, whether it's Kamala Harris or not, I don't think it'll be her either. I think they're going to I look, if you're going to rig the game, you rig the whole thing. So essentially, you know, you get to <laughs> you get to uh, you, you, you basically stack the decks going into uh, going into the convention. Joe Biden says they just tell him we can't we can't nominate you and out comes Gavin or somebody else now. I think that could also cost them the election, too. In other words, if they do something like that, I think people could get really sick to their stomach. And what they're counting on is no Trump. But that's that's an, that's not a China issue. But I do think that, that I think the myth is that Trump has like some magic thing. OK, I'm going to put big tariffs on China. He doesn't really have a policy. He doesn't have a thing. It's again, Donald Trump. I'll sit there and talk to Xi Jinping. His problem is Xi Jinping does not, he's not the Xi Jinping that Donald Trump had, you know, and that's the problem. It gets back to this fallacy of who negotiates with these guys if they don't have the juice to negotiate. I don't think Xi Jinping has the juice that they say is. I think if Xi Jinping, you know, tells his people, you got to do this, you got to do that. I'm not so sure it happens the way it used to happen. You know, and I, I think that's both good and bad. I think it's good for Taiwan because I don't think they're going to be coming over here anytime soon. He'll get pushed back on that. But I mean, they're in real trouble. And that's why we get all the way back to this Evergrande thing. It's just amazing to me. People send me a note. Hey, I heard this Evergrande's a pretty big developer. No, it's not like Bob. It's not like Bob Aberich, you know, or, or, or Bernstein builders in D.C. who builds a few buildings. These guys are the cash flow of the real estate sector. They're, they're key. 
And they're yeah. huge. It's a trillion U.S. dollar company in terms of their interactions and their business practices. So it's really going to be something. But I think I think what we're looking at here is is really how it 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 draws down on the on the on the country, and that that's going well, to be really tough. Well, that, there's a question on that. So you, so your boss Sumi Lai, you know, remarkable in that he got rich sort of twice. First, coming to Hong Kong with the shirt on his back and very little else. Um, buying a dilapidated factory, building that into Giordano men's apparel, um, essentially got pushed out of that because he sided with the, the students at Tiananmen yeah. or sided with those who wanted democracy after Tiananmen and they had operations in the mainland and that, you know, did not compute and then gets rich an entire, entirely different industry media, which is one where it's so easy to lose a lot of money and you're competing with billionaires who are willing to lose money just uh, out of vanity and you're competing against the Chicoms, and still succeeds. Um, what did he or think about sort of the real estate model that was being pursued on the mainland? Um, did he see any of this coming? He, he did. I mean, look, Jimmy is a Hayekian, you know, Friedrich Hayek. He's a Hayekian businessman. He he rode to serfdom was his awakening. He is pers- was personal friends with Milton Friedman. That's well known. Um, He's a, he's a free, he's a Cato Institute loves him. You know what I'm saying? He's a, he's a small government guy. Um, I used to call Jimmy a, uh, I used to call Jimmy like misplaced in terms of time um, in, in, in Hong Kong. Cause we were always fighting the rear guard action in Hong Kong. You know, we had, we had Milton Friedman and Hayek bust in, and John Cooperthwaite, the father hung up you know, in our, in our lobby to let people know where we stand politically. That's what, I mean, economically, our economics were complete free market economics. And Jimmy fully understood this. And he would, he would always, we would talk about like, oh, this property in China, it's going to crash. It's going to crash. Well, he picked up a couple of years ago. He said, well, it may take three years, may take seven years, may take 10 years. But he said, fewer people means fewer apartments. You're not going to need them. And he said, you know, at a certain point in time, what's, what's the magic What's the magic number? There's 3% too many apartments you start combining. There's 10% too many apartments you start collapsing. There's 20%. Maybe it, maybe it takes that long to go down before it's collapsing. But the simple fact of the matter is, like he said, it's supply and demand. And so Jimmy saw this, but Jimmy saw also there's two things that I think really that are destroying, uh, that are falling apart in Hong Kong, but have fallen apart in China and are really coming home. The first is there's just no checks and balances in China. In other words, all the checks yeah. and all the balances are with one group, not one guy anymore, but one group. And when the times are trouble, everybody's protecting themselves. So there's no accountability to the outside people. It's all accountability internally. It's all. It, and so they, they don't make decisions. Again, it, it gets back to that whole theme that I'm on to of like, there's nobody there to deal with. So, so he would, he would see that as a guy who ran large corporations, they can't they can't put together a response because there's no driving force in the U.S. or the U.K. Any democracy, yeah, it may be a clusterfuck. Excuse my language, but but the fact of the matter is, but the fact of the matter is, it it gets resolved because it, it will bottom out and other people will come in and fix it, and and that's what they're promising the the, the voters. In China, you don't have that. So Jimmy would look at that. The other thing he would look at is just how stupid it is to think that you can actually build wealth on real estate. He never liked that. And you know, in Hong Kong, he didn't own property. Now, 
part of the reason is, and he told me many times, he said, anything I have, they're going to take. You know, he always had a belief that in 1989, I'm sorry, 1997, and I think he was right. There was probably an idea, do we go after this guy or not go after him? The decision was made not to go after him and some others. And then they just kind of kept it on the back burner, in fairness to him, for more than 25 years, 20, you know, 20, 20 years. Then they decided to go after him. But his point is, if I owned anything here, because we got offered a couple of places. I remember it was 2011, 2012 or something around then, there was a really nice house that he was really interested in. It was, and it, you could actually buy it. It was actually going to be a standalone house. And it was for like, you know, 25 million US dollars and we could fix it up and it would have been nice. And he just said, if I put it here, he said, they're going to take it. He said, I know they're going to, he said, one day he said, I'll get in trouble. We'll get sued. They'll do something. This, this will just be a money pit for me. In other words, it'll be, it'll be worth, uh, it won't be worth anything. Or his other fear was he would get sued personally for something he said. You know, and that's how they would they would take it one way or the other. So he just saw it. He you can you can tell that he saw it. I I think that he would say Hong Kong now is risking that same thing. You know, getting rid of the rule of law, destroying the media, destroying the press. You know, and I and I and I think we're on the way. But yeah, Jimmy completely saw this. It was amazing. If you if you just remember the conversations, it's it's really funny. He liked Jordan Gordon Chang a lot, but he just said about he said a, a, a few years back he said it was really funny he said I mean not a few years back like ten years ago he goes I keep predicting that China's going to collapse but I've just stopped doing it because I'm wrong all the time he said you know <laughs> but he said these are the things that are going to happen but I think what he did I remember talking between him and one of our other senior senior editors and we were having a conversation about why it hadn't happened yet. And he said he underestimated the demand in the rest of the world for Chinese goods. In other uh, words, he underestimated okay. the export power. He told me that once. He told he told he's back. He said that a couple of times. It's true. Yeah, I didn't have the, time, chance, chance to write on it. Right now, the late Claudia Rosette once said to me too that people forget that these these dictatorial systems do have a way of lasting longer than they should. I mean, when you had that succession of geriatric leaders of the Soviet Union, uh, Brezhnev, Andropov, Gromyko, was there another one? And then they got to Gorbachev, who maybe bought them. I mean, people blame him for taking it down. I think maybe he bought him a few more years. But <laughs> why didn't the Soviet Union collapse in 1979? Why did it make it to uh, 91? Um, and it is. I mean, these these sort of the, these houses of cards can be propped up for an unusually long amount of time. But but eventually, well, you know, they seem you're to a refugee from California. Look how long California has stayed propped up. Yeah. And, they, and, and you know, the other thing, too, is one of the things also about China is and I'll quote Jimmy again. Jimmy always said, you know, initially, Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and even Hu Jintao. They did a pretty good job of staying out of the way of the economy. You know, you can say what you want to say about them, but they really did do a pretty good job of just staying the hell out of the way, which is probably the most important thing that we, we've learned. I mean, I always tell people the Trump tax cuts <laughs> helped, but what really helped was just getting the hell out of the way. Right. You know, there was a deregulation. That's that's what helps. Um, and I think that's when he comes in. I think that's going to be the explosion. I think he knows that, too. 
if he come if he gets in. Biden, on the other hand, they're going to regulate our. They're going to regulate. You know, your son's going to be in. Your son's going to be basically being told what size uh, uh, milk jug he can have or something like that. You know, if he brings, he's going to be suspended and sent to a camp for re-education because he has one of those. What are those big milk jugs they have now or something like that? Oh, right. Uh, those are going around. Whatever that yeah. is. You know. Yeah. The no, thing you, is, there's a, it's a great line from Lawrence of Arabia where you have the guy who's playing General Allen be arguing with the medical officer. Medical officer says, sir, we can't just do nothing. And Allen goes... Why not? It's often best. <laughs> Let's make that guy president. No, I mean it's 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 that's a great line. It's it, it is, but I, I do think the thing is, is like you know the boss. He, he he said you know it's and the point that he's making is is that these people came from such hardship, and they've got things now, and they don't want to lose those things. So the fact of the matter is for them to go back to the streets in China, for them to go back to the streets in Hong Kong, they're going to have to lose a lot more. Mm. Hong Kong is probably stable. It will not be anything from the West. There's no color revolution. But let me tell you something. You drop Hong Kong property prices another 15, five, another 15, 20%. I do not think that John Lee and Chris Tang, you know, the top two guys there, are going to be having that good of a time. And I think the same thing in China. And I think the fact of the matter is they don't know how to turn it around. They really don't know how to turn it around. I mean, honestly, I I, I don't really know how they turn. I mean, I know what I could do, but I don't know whether it would turn it around or not. And their problem is they've got no other source of wealth other than, quote unquote, manufacturing, which they're they're losing that advantage, you know, because their cost is rising because of a, a shrinking workforce. So they got a little bit of pricing power, but that pricing power is going directly to the people. That's good. But they've got they've got they've got all these problems, but there's no dynamism in the economy. You know, it's like the other day, Elon Musk said, I'll let you go to Elon Musk said, well, they're going to over they're going to overrun us in cars. Elon Musk wasn't threatening. He was saying, hey, you got to protect us. You know, there's a hundred. I was watching CNBC, Marabara from from GM said there's a hundred car manu- electric car manufacturers in China, you know. Now, I happen to know being here in Taiwan, and we've seen a few of them here, that they're junk. They're absolute junk. They're disposable cars. They literally run for two years, and they're junk. I couldn't hmm. imagine what would happen to the, a fleet of BYD cars in Chicago with a week of negative, of, of like 10-degree <laughs> weather. It'd be over. They'd just crack. They'd disappear, right. dissipate. Abandoned. But the thing is, is that that could, you know, people could say, okay, it's a disposable car. I'll get a new one, you know, and then I'll just keep going. But the the point is, is that they don't have anything. And I really think, Christian, I have to tell you, I think they're in a lot of trouble. We've talked around it. It's the reason why I like podcasts. We can talk about everything and I can explore. So I apologize to any listeners who, uh, who watch viewers <laughs> who are a little confused. But I just think, I don't think we're dealing with anyone in China who's really in charge anymore. I think they've got massive problems because of this real estate. The real estate looking to turn into cash flow issues very quickly. And the U.S. on our side should be doing something to push them. And that, by the way, that pressure would help them reform, too, that outside pressure that we're putting on them. And then I'll leave it with my final prediction. Here's my next prediction. I am buy you a steak dinner. You and Marco, everybody else, steak dinner, Chase. 
My prediction is after the election next year, the Biden administration led by John Kerry or someone else in a special role is going to propose a bailout for China. Huh. Wow. That's my prediction. I absolutely predict that. I don't think we really understand the mentality of the elites in what, in what they want to do. It is like F you to the, to the, to the American public, to the British public. This, this right. will write our ship. I can already, I can already, you can already see the people on CNBC saying, Oh, you know, in the long term, everybody benefits. I mean, you can almost hear that NPR voice going off. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, and well Biden you know, seems have... unperturbed by the fact that he's diluted everyone's money, uh, earnings, owning, uh, you know, anything. Um, you know, they're purchasing power by 30% with the cumulative inflation. So why not? He doesn't care. Some more dollars, I mean, bail someone out. It's just, after it's, all, it's just the middle, ta- middle class who you're screwing. I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, we really do have... I mean, let me just put it this way. If you've got a couple, there's like hundreds of these couples in Washington, D.C. now, where one is a, a, an, administra- an undersecretary or one's a, a SES2, a staff member. If you're a staff member on at the White House and you're making like 165, okay, you're equivalent of a GS-14, and they, they move 165. And your wife is over on Capitol Hill as a senior legislative director. I'm actually thinking of the person right now. Between the two of them, they're making about $340,000 a year. Because she makes about she makes about one sixty, he makes one sixty. So they say, yeah, about three about three twenty a year, three twenty a year. Plus they both get a little bonus on the on his side. So they three twenty a year. Three twenty a year puts you in just so people know that. That puts you in the top three percent of earners in the world, in the country. It's right. com- money that never stops. It's money that always shows up. It's money that's there, 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 as I call it, and they're fine. And we've literally got throughout our throughout the Biden administration. And let me tell you something: the Trump had the Trump administration had some people like that too. I bumped into. You know what I'm saying? You know, look. I 330 may not attract all of us. You know what I'm saying? It may not be the most attractive thing for some people, but for the vast majority of the American people, that's a very, very good salary. A very, right, very good right. income. And comes benefits and health oh life. And even after you yeah, retire. You, 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 yeah. Yeah. And if, and if you career in, you know what I'm saying? Which by the way, that's the first thing Trump should do. Absolutely. First thing that Trump should do when he goes in, he, I, I would find that, Everybody who careered in under Obama and under them, I'd move them all into the special department. I said, we're creating a new department. I'd create the new department. I'd move them in the new department, keep them there for two years. It'd be the rubber room of government. Okay. They got their (laughs) job. They're in the rubber room of government. We got a crisis coming up. Keep them there for two years. Shut the whole damn thing down. Right. You're better off. You're better off paying those people to sit in the rubber room and do nothing than to have them messing around with the economy. Yeah, no, just tell them that their their attendance is required at nothing. Bonnie, I'll leave you with one parting thought, which was it was 2007 or probably 2008. It was the end of the Bush administration and the politicals 
had a powwow once a month and it was the undersecretary for management who was addressing all of us. And she asked, she said, oh, and some of you might want to be interested in becoming permanent employees. Who here is interested? And she didn't use the term burrowing in, but that's what she meant. And, and absolutely no one raised their hand in the entire group. It was pretty funny. Yeah, because the Bush guys uh, were all That's not the case with the Democrats. They like burrowing in. I mean, the thing is, is like, in fairness to the, to the Biden administration people now, a lot of them aren't going to career in too because we've created they've created a system where basically you go outside and you can milk money off of it, you know, like no tomorrow. Right. Years ago, years ago, I got offered a job. There was a lobbying firm that they wanted they wanted to have me. It was before I was really on the shit list for China, and a friend of mine was saying, "Oh, you should come join us, join us." And I was like, "Nah," and it, it wasn't it wasn't really that attractive financially, but it wasn't it wouldn't have been a burden, you know. In other words, we could have done it, but there was not, not a lot of upside. But I just I just remember they were telling me how they bill my they would bill my hours. And I'm going like, dude, you're kidding me. I mean, that's like, what would I do if I'm just sitting? You go, no, you got to bill. That's the thing, Mark. You got to bill 45 hours a week. And I go, yeah, but I have to work 70 hours a week for that. And he's like, no, 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 no. I said, well, that's how law firms. I mean, law firms, if they bill 40 hours. Just for good, you know, the guy's usually working 50, you know what I'm saying? He's working, a sure. they don't bill every hour. Um, and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, look, all you got to do is think about it, send a few notes, do this. I'm going like, oh my God, what a racket, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it, it just, I, I just sat there. I was like, you know, oh my God, what a racket. That's why, you know, when you have good, when you have good lobbyists and you have good people, you're okay. But I mean, you look at some of, you look at DC, it's just, it's, it's a cesspool. Anyway, yeah. that's a too late point. But anyway, I hope you're doing well. Take Very care of yourself. Well, we're going to take you up on that prediction. Steak dinner, if we bail out the Chi-Coms. Stranger yeah, things have I, happened. I'm, you, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm going to say it's going to be a serious proposal. It'll be an administration-level proposal. Yeah, Jimmy you know, Rubin will be out it'll there. Get, it'll get destroyed. It'll get eaten alive. <laughs> on that. Our, new, our new favorite man, John Fetterman, will do something with it. we got to talk about him sometime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I can see that. You can't make fun of him Yeah, suddenly I've become in favor of putting on the Senate floor. Uh, all right, that's it for this edition. We'll be back again soon with another one. Uh, talk to you later. Bye.